The Bible reading today uh, is from Ephesians 4, verse 25. Just the one verse, right, Mark? Just the one verse, so it's a short one. Uh, you can find that in your Bible app. It's also in your bulletins that you got on the way in. Um, or if you have a Bible with you, uh, I believe we are reading from the uh, ESV. The ESV, if, if you need to pick a language. Hear the word of the Lord, Ephesians 4, verse 25. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. This is the word of the Lord. All right, hello again. Um, this morning, we're going to be continuing our uh, fall sermon series through the latter half of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And so far in this series, we've been um, hearing about how the Apostle Paul um, has laid out the narrative arc and the story of the gospel in the first three chapters of the letter, and now we've been camped out in chapter four, um, where we're seeing he's, he's developing this idea that as Christians, um, we have been joined to Christ, and in so doing, we have been joined to one another as many parts of his body. And um, we've seen how now being joined together as one body, we're now in this process of growing and maturing together and more and more uh, growing in our faith and in the outworking of it. And it's important to remember um, that this process of growing and maturing um, is the work of the Holy Spirit in us, that we are powerless to uh, we are powerless to make meaningful and lasting changes in and of ourselves. And yet, Paul, at the, at the beginning of this chapter, at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul calls us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Right? We're called to live a certain way. And this is a theme throughout all of Scripture. We spent the summer in the Psalms, and we saw how the Hebrew poetry writers often spoke about this as, as walking in the way of the righteous or in the way of the wise. Right, and we saw in our text last week that Paul, here in Ephesians, he speaks about this with the language of, of putting off the old self and putting on the new self. Right, we're called to inhabit this new identity that Christ has purchased for us. And we don't purchase or earn this identity for ourselves by doing anything, but rather uh, as we grow in our awareness of what Christ has already accomplished on our behalf, our lives will come to reflect this new reality more and more. And so today we come to the section in the letter where uh, Paul is listing a number of the characteristics of this new self. And, and he packages them here as imperatives and, or commands. In our verse here, he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, which could also be read as having put off the lie, which is the same language that he's been using so far for putting off the old self, right? Now, put off the lie. Um, so having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And so the command is to speak the truth to one another. And so it's fitting that we would ask, what is the truth that Paul is referring to? And why is this command fronted? Uh, Paul seems to have a very linear 
train of thought throughout the letter um, and his grammar and his syntax seems to point to the fact that the truth that he's referencing here is the gospel that he has been um, summarizing and presenting up to this point in the letter. And the reason that he begins with this seemingly obvious command to speak the truth is that Paul understands that the lie of the old self goes far, far deeper than most of us realize. In John 8, Jesus calls the devil the father of lies. And the father of lies has been up to the same old trick since the very beginning of human history. A theologian named Dallas Willard, he wrote this book called uh, The Renovation of the Heart. And in it, he said this, and he's speaking about the devil here in the Garden of Eden. He said, when he undertook to draw Eve away from God, he did not hit her with a stick, but with an idea. It was the idea that God could not be trusted and that she must act on her own to secure her own well-being. This is the basic idea behind all temptation. God is presented as depriving us by his command of what is good. So we think we must take matters into our own hands and act contrary to what he has said. This image of God leads to our pushing him out of our thoughts and putting ourselves on the throne of the universe. The condition of the ruined soul and the world naturally results. The putting off of the old self and the putting on of the new self involves this progressive replacement of this age-old lie with the truth of the gospel in every area of our lives. And so Paul's command in our text today involves learning to identify this lie in our own thinking and by the power of the Spirit, tearing it out by its roots and replacing it with the truth. And so we have to begin by um, learning what this truth is before we can speak it. And so we're going to talk about this truth in three, under three headings, basically. Uh, first, the truth of the world. Second, the truth about ourselves. And the third, the truth uh, about each other. So up to this point in the letter, Paul has been presenting us with the truth, right? With the story of the gospel. And now he's showing us how submission to this truth changes everything and that's because the gospel is the true story of the whole world it's the truth it's the truth about reality rather it's not just this little um, compartmentalized thing over here that gets added to your own story when you become a christian it's the overarching narrative of scripture from start to finish but more importantly it's the golden thread that binds all of human history together Therefore, the gospel, while it is certainly much more than just another worldview in the endless bucket of options, um, it certainly is a worldview. It is a lens through which we evaluate and interpret everything. And because of this, it's in competition with all other worldviews. We must be very wary of the postmodern myth of compatibility or tolerance, as we often call it in our society. So that's a misuse of the word, but I digress. Um, when we adopt this view, whether consciously or subconsciously, that people can choose and operate 
out of their own versions of the truth, we become religious syncretists. First stickers, it spells out the word coexist using all these religious symbols, right? The C is the, the crescent moon of Islam. Uh, the O is the peace sign, which is apparently also a Wiccan symbol. Um, the E is a Hindu symbol. The X is the star of David. The dot in the I is the Satanist um, or pagan pentagram. The S is the Chinese yin-yang, and the T is the Christian cross. And the message of this bumper sticker is that all religious beliefs are equally valid. But that idea is completely illogical. That could not even pass the toddler test. Right? Because all religions make absolute truth claims about reality. And they run counter to one another, which means that either none of them are correct or one of them is correct. The only option that is an impossibility is that they're all equally correct at the same time. Make no mistake about it, the truth that is contained in the Bible is an exclusive, objective, absolute standard that is external to us. And therefore, it is not um, affected by our acceptance or our rejection of it. And you either have to reconcile with that or reject it entirely. It is not a malleable, subjective thing that we conjure up from within ourselves. Right? It's important to remember that it was Oprah who popularized the idea of speaking your truth or speaking my truth. Right? And what is actually being put forward when people use that language is the idea of uh, truth that's been filtered through. It's individual perception based on personal experience and an inhabited worldview. And that's not to say that there's no value in unique perspectives, because there certainly is. But, but we have to remind ourselves that when that language is used, we are no longer discussing the truth as an entity. But that's a line that often gets blurred in the current conversation in our culture. And it's into these blurry areas that the devil whispers the lie. These faulty definitions of truth rob us of all certainty and security in the world. They put us on the defensive and they make us suspicious of every truth claim made by anyone anywhere, including God. But this endless suspicion and deconstruction of truth always leaves us empty-handed. Uh, in his book, The Absolution of Man, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote this. He said, you can't go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. To see through all things is the same as not to see. And this is exactly why our cultural climate has produced things like alternative facts, fake news, deep fake videos, right? What is true? How do we even know anymore, right? And it's no surprise then that in this climate, we've also produced epidemic levels of hopelessness and despair, right? The lie is exposed in the fact that we live in a truthless age, or what journalists sometimes like to call a post-truth age, right? We live in the age of spin, in a world where truth, or a world rather without truth, we are left unmoored, right? We're floating on this 
vast, endless sea of uncertainty without the hope of ever reaching the safety of harbor or putting our feet on solid ground ever again. And that's a terrifying thought. That is a world in which peace and rest can only ever be an illusion. And so we need to ask, how does the gospel help us make sense of the world that we live in and flip it on its head? If you've been following along with our sermon series so far, you've likely heard Pastor Paul use the term expressive individualism to describe sort of the popular, um, one of the more popular worldviews at play right now in our culture. And he pointed out it's more easily recognized by the slogan, you do you, right? You choose your own truth, you make your own meaning. Right? It's just the contemporary version of the exact same lie that the devil's been telling since the very beginning of time, right? And Mark Sayers, in his book, uh, The Disappearing Church, he summarized it beautifully, and he said this. He said, we want the kingdom without the king. Right? Western civilization has progressed on the back of Judeo-Christian vision for the world outlined in Jesus' teachings. We want the socio-political benefits of Jesus' kingdom, Right? We want more peace, we want more justice, we want more equality, we want more dignity. But we don't want to submit to Jesus as Lord. We think we can have our cake and eat it too. In the kingdom of post-Christianity, um, salvation is realized in unlimited personal freedom. And it's not the kind of freedom that you find in a new identity in Christ, but rather the kind that's been redefined as the ability to do whatever I want, whenever I want to. And nobody has the right to question my choices. This plays itself out in our culture every day. Right? One of the most glaringly obvious expressions of this in our moment in history is, is how we call people who rebel against the biblical view of sex and gender heroes. Right? We talk about how brave they are. We celebrate a fundamental denial of reality and the beauty of God's design for human flourishing, even in large sectors of the church. And I don't say that without sensitivity to the complexity and the difficulty of those wrestling with these issues. But in Romans 1, Paul diagnoses this type of culture and he says that we've exchanged the truth for a lie. We worship the created thing rather than the creature, or rather than the cre creator. And this unrestricted personal autonomy hasn't led to more enlightenment or more happiness the way we were told it would. It hasn't delivered, right? Instead, it's led to greater confusion, isolation, outrage, and fear. And if you don't believe me, just spend 10 minutes on Twitter if you can even handle it. It is because we've thrown off the shackles of God's design for our lives that we've been left in a meaning vacuum. And human beings are not as rational and progressive and original as we like to think we are. We need meaning given. And this is why the political discourse in the West has become both so mainstream and so toxic. Right? In the absence of God's moral standards, we've adopted political platforms and social activism as our moral absolutes. 
Just listen to the language that people use to describe people on the opposite side of the political spectrum. Right? In today's political climate, if you don't share my views on the environment or immigration or the economy, it's become perfectly acceptable for me to characterize you as an immoral monster. Right? Comparing people to Hitler has become so commonplace that nobody even bats an eye anymore. And all of this is symptomatic of this lie which can only ever drive wedges between us. But the truth is that God is sovereign. And he has been working out his good and perfect plans to redeem the world since before it began. And he's told us what he's up to. Paul put it this way in uh, chapter 1, 9 and 10. He talks about how God has made and known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. He's in the process of undoing the effects of the lie. The lie has driven us away from God and away from one another. And now in Christ, God is bringing us back together. He's making all things new. And he's using the church to do it. Paul says in chapter 3, verse 20, that God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. This is the truth about the world that we live in, and this is the truth that we're called to speak to one another and to remind one another of. And once we understand the truth of the world and what God is up to in it, then we can turn our attention to the truth about ourselves. This is the second point, the truth about ourselves. In chapter 2 of this letter, in the first 10 verses, Paul tells the Ephesian Christians that they were dead in their sins and trespasses, right? That they were once slaves to the desires of their bodies and minds, that they were children of wrath. But then in verse 4, he reveals the most staggeringly beautiful truth ever, and he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and seated us with himself in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is reality. That is true. And it's as true for the church today as it was for Paul's original audience. And one of the ways that we, we uh, like to summarize this two-pronged sort of truth of the gospel um, is one that is borrowed from Timothy Keller, um, who talks about these two inseparable truths as, as the first being, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. So what then does it look like to speak this truth about ourselves to one another. James, the brother of Jesus, in chapter 5 of his letter, suggests that Christians ought to confess their sins to one another and pray for one another. And for most of us, that's a really scary idea. Right? But James seems to think that this is essential for the health of the church, and Paul, in Ephesians, seems to be making a similar point. I want to read to you a quote from... Uh, 
Dietra Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together. It's a little bit of a lengthy one, so hang with me. He says, he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. It may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship, common prayer, and all the fellowship and service, may still be left to their loneliness. The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and devout people, they do not have fellowship as undevout, as sinners. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner, so everyone must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. And so we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. If we refuse to be known by one another, we will hinder the growth of the body. We will simply allow a slightly polished version of the lie to remain unchallenged. If shame is allowed to prevail over grace in the church, then we are simply professing the lie that the devil has won. But when we confess our sins and our weaknesses to one another, we have the opportunity to pray the truth of the gospel over one another as well. God in his infinite wisdom has designed the church to grow through this very process. Let's look at... Uh, Verse 15 of chapter 4 here in Ephesians. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In a lecture by Ed Walsh that I sat for, he said something that struck me, so I wrote it down. He said, forgiven people whose guilt and shame has been taken by Jesus have nothing to hide. And so we are willing to disclose most anything if we think it would edify another person. This kind of self-disclosure that the gospel makes possible is disarming. And it encourages others to let their walls down and be known as well. We then have the opportunity to mutually comfort and encourage and challenge one another by reminding each other of the truth of the gospel and our new identities in Christ. And I pray that our engaged groups would take this seriously. There is no telling what God could accomplish in this church if we really pressed into Paul's command to speak the truth to one another. All right, point three. Um, Humans, we're designed to find meaning and purpose in the context and comfort of relationships. With God, first of all, but also with one another. And even famous atheists like Sam Harris understand this. He wrote a little book called uh, Lying, Just Lying. And in it, he said this, Honest people are a refuge. You know they mean what they say. You know they, what, the sorry, you know they will not say one thing to your face and another thing behind your back. You know they will tell you when they think you have failed. And for this reason, their praise can also not be mistaken for mere flattery. Right? Though he fundamentally denies the truth of the gospel, he still understands 
that truth is crucial for community and relationships to work the way that they're designed to. In an age of unprecedented connectivity, our relational networks have become a mile wide, but only an inch deep. Right? In this, in this age, everybody becomes a Facebook friend, including our church families. Right? Think about it. We, we come together here on a Sunday morning, we worship together, and we're edified and, and nourished by um, the Word, and, and we're encouraged, and then when it's over, we come together for fellowship, and at least in my experience, and of course there are ex- exceptions to this, but generally speaking, we're comfortable uh, sharing the highlights of our weeks, right, and uh, chatting about current events or work or sports, we might tell a joke or two. We might even publicly update our relationship status. But the room gets awfully quiet when someone gets a little too real about their pain or their struggles with sin. And I get it, because that's my natural inclination too. But it's not the way it should be. Right? The gospel has so much to say to our experiences of pain and our struggles with sin. But the devil wants to keep us quiet because then he can keep us isolated. I'm going to borrow from Mark Sayers again. This is not a quote, but I'm just going to use his imagery because it's amazing. He talks about how the devil's game is to create a truth desert, right, where we're starved and parched for truth. And in that place, we will chase after mirages, Right? We're tricked into chasing after things that only look like the truth because we're so delirious and malnourished. And after a while, we find ourselves lost and alone in a hostile wilderness. And in that place, he is free to pick us off when we're weak and defenseless. But Jesus says no. Right? He designed his church so that that would not be possible when it's functioning properly. We are members of one body. We are members of a whole. Joined together by both the bad news and the good news of the gospel. We share a common story, but in order to experience the incredible benefits and safety of this community that we've been joined to, we need to speak the truth to one another. We need to speak the truth about the world around us and the pitfalls that abound. If the eye sees the hand reaching into a rattlesnake nest, right, it must warn the hand. It doesn't have the option to just say, hey, man, the hand can do what it wants, right? You do you. Who am I to interfere? Right? Because if the hand gets bit and the poison reaches the bloodstream, the whole body will suffer. Deep, meaningful connection requires the voluntary sacrificing of our comfortable economy. The deeper the relationship you hope to cultivate, the greater the amount of freedom you're going to need to surrender in order to accomplish it. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves is, am I willing to pay that price? All right. I'm going to finish with a personal illustration from my own life. Probably six or seven years ago, I would say, um, I was at a very 
very different place in my spiritual life and my walk with Christ. Um, and I was consumed um, by concern about other people's opinions about me. It was really kind of crippling. And it was actually hard to be in a room full of people without you know, having a panic attack. And a great man who later became um, the most important spiritual mentor in my life, probably, um, he uh, that he was going to encourage me to try and explore the, op- the possibility of leading worship. And of course, that idea was like absolutely terrifying to me. It was hard enough to be in the shadows at the back of the room, let alone the like stomach the idea of being at the front of the room or in the spotlight, right? It literally made me want to throw up. Um, but I agreed mostly for his sake to meet with him. Um, just to, you know, we would do, we would practice worship songs together. We would craft these little liturgies and we would lead each other in worship. And he was just very patient and encouraging with me. But I still wasn't ready to budge. And after a while, um, one day he kind of just said to me, like, I know you and I know what you're capable of. The only thing that's holding you back is that you do not yet believe the gospel. And, um, I mean, I'd gone to church my whole life. I thought I was a Christian. (laughs) And (laughs) so this was like, this really took me back. Like, I was super, um, I was just, I was hurt at first, I think. And uh, I went home to kind of lick my wounds. And over time, uh, hurt kind of turned into anger. And I thought, like, you know, how dare you judge me? You don't know what I believe. Um, But God used that seed that he planted. Uh, And I couldn't shake it. And a little while later, I kind of woke up one day, and I was just like, oh, crap, he's right. And, uh, and the reality is, um, because he loved me enough to risk making things uncomfortable, to speak the truth about me to me, even though it was hard, God kickstarted the most significant season of spiritual growth in my life through that. And I'm not suggesting that we go around nitpicking each other's lives either. That's, that's not the point here. But a brother or sister in Christ speaking the truth in love from a place of humility and patience is an incredibly powerful tool. Back then, I, you know, the idea of standing up here and preaching, I mean, it would have been my worst nightmare. I would, I would rather have died. But by the grace of God, this is where I am now. And God used a brother in Christ speaking the truth into my life to accomplish it. So think about that. That's all I got for you. Let's pray. Good and gracious Father, Lord, we thank you for the immeasurable riches of grace that you've shown to us in joining us to Christ. And Lord, we praise you for the way you've joined us to one another as well in your body. Lord, I pray that by your spirit, we would learn to speak the truth to one another wisely, with humility, with patience. And God, I pray that you will do a mighty work in us and that we would come more and more to reflect your goodness and love to each other and our neighbors beyond our little church community. And we pray that it would all be to your glory. Amen.